Good morning. Great to see you all. Happy Easter. How exciting. Great. So um, we are going to be continuing in our series in Exodus 19, but unashamedly, it is Easter Sunday. We're going to be dwelling on the good news of the resurrection, and our passage today is jam-packed full of resurrection good news. So we've got a real treat for us this morning. Um, I'm going to be reading from Exodus 19, and just want to give a particular warm welcome to you if you are new or visiting for the first time or not been around for a while. Um, just to catch up to speed, we've been enjoying um, Exodus, a book in the Bible which charts the history of the Israelites being brought out of a horrific, oppressive slavery in Egypt being brought miraculously out through signs and wonders, taken through the Red Sea, taken into the wilderness, God providing manna from heaven when they were hungry, providing water from a rock when they were thirsty, and just providing for them every step of the way. And today, we reach the destination. They are headed to Mount Sinai. Now, you might have heard um, of Mount Sinai referred to in the past as um, Mount Horeb. They are the same place, and that is where we come to this morning. But just as, as you're finding that in your Bibles, Exodus 19, um, I just want to prompt us then to just think about what we, what we mean by freedom. It's one of those great words that we love to dwell on. We all want to be free, don't we? We all want to be um, free from any sort of oppression, any sort of restriction. But what does it really mean to be free? What does God mean for us when he talks about our freedom? For the Israelites, obviously, coming out of such a, an oppressive situation might seem a million miles away from what you experience. It might be that you do feel like you are in need of freedom. Perhaps there are um, addictions or just even habits, maybe anxieties or fears that you're well aware of you would like freedom from. We often think of those things we want to be free from. But I want us today to also dwell on what are we free for? What are we set free to do? Is it just to do whatever we like, to, to do whatever comes to, to mind? Or is there more purpose? Are we free for something more meaningful? Our whole series has been taglined, he draws us out so he can draw us in. And the wonderful news about this passage and the news of the resurrection is that we are saved for something. We are saved for a revolutionary freedom. There are things that were totally off limits to us, which now, because of the events of Easter, are within our grasp. And we're going to enjoy that this morning. So, reading from Exodus 19, starting at verse 9. The Israelites are gathered around Mount Horeb, and Moses is speaking with God. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And skipping ahead to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Here Moses is back at Mount Sinai. You might remember some time back, Moses first encountered God at this very place through the burning bush. And as promised, God had said, you would lead my people out into freedom and you'll come again here to worship me at this very place. And God promises now that he is going to come and meet with them. On the third day, I will come down in sight of all Israel. Now you might think, surely Israel has seen God Surely they've seen him in the the signs and wonders done in Egypt to the Red Sea. Most visually, maybe they've they've seen him ongoing with with them in a pillar of fire, in a pillar of cloud. They've seen God. But yet, he promises on the third day, I will come down. In some special way, God is going to reveal himself. He's going to come close. You see, this is the very thing that God had promised he was going to do. He previously, when he sent Moses to go and take them out of slavery, he told them to tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might come and worship me. This was always the plan. They were to come out of slavery in Egypt to worship God. That was what they were freed from, and this is what they were freed for, to worship him. That's what you and I were made for. The living God makes us to worship him. And so, he, as promised, he brings them out and brings them to Mount Sinai where he is going to worship them. Well, whether they are going to worship him. It might seem a little bit unfair, do you not think? Surely, if you're going to set someone free, surely they should just be free to do whatever. Surely to say, I'll set you free so that you worship me, does that not seem a little bit unfair? especially to our modern ears. Surely they should be free to worship whoever they like. Surely they should be free not to worship at all. Just imagine the scenario. If God had brought them out of the slavery and oppression of Egypt, what were they to do then? Were they to be destroyed by one of the surrounding nations, maybe enslaved again by one of the surrounding nations? How were they to cope with the wilderness, the the thirst, the hunger? But most importantly, If they hadn't come to worship God, they would have found someone else to worship. You see, we are hardwired to worship. We were made to worship God. And if we don't, we find something else to worship. Whether it's the the idols that you could carve and touch from the ancient civilizations, or whether it's some of our idols today, our careers, our family aspirations, some of the isms, the materialism, the individualism. We are made to worship. We are made to worship. And if we don't worship God, we will worship something. We'll find something to give our energies to, something to give our affections to. See, we were set free to worship God. That's the one we were created for. That's the one that we find our greatest joy in worshipping. And if we don't worship him, we will worship something else. So God promises to come on the third day and meet with them. 
that's kind of nice, isn't it? That's really nice. I'm going to come and meet with you. If a friend phones and said, I'm going to come meet with you on, on the third day, look out for me, I'm coming to see you. That's really nice. Especially, I might look back and look at how God describes his rescue. He describes it earlier on in, in um, chapter 19 as like an eagle bringing them out on eagle's wings and bringing them to himself. The strength of the eagle and the, the kind of maternal care. It's nice, isn't it? Nice and kind of cuddly and domestic and... Yeah, could enjoy that. Except that verse 16 isn't very nice. It doesn't look nice and cozy. It looks pretty terrifying. Here we have this mountain, Mount Sinai, and it is ablaze. Smoke is billowing off it. There are um, great thunderclouds roaring. There's lightning. The whole earth is trembling. And the people are trembling in fear as well. So it doesn't sound very tame. It doesn't sound very domesticated. It certainly doesn't sound very nice. It's kind of like one of the characters in the Chronicles of Narnia said, Aslan is not a tame lion, but he is good. He's not safe, but he is good. Our God is not safe. He is terrifyingly mighty. He is awesome beyond compare. He's not safe, but he is good. And now with our um, modern scientific discoveries, we can get an even more terrifying picture. Alongside this burning mountain, we can look at the images of galaxies, of the universe, of our burning ball of gas that is our sun, and then... How many other million stars in the sky? And the one we worship is the one who just spoke them into being. Is that not terrifying? Is that not utterly, utterly terrifying? And yet, isn't it amazing that a God of that magnitude, of that awesomeness, of that power, wants to come and meet with you and me? Isn't that mind-blowing? As we come to worship him, to call to mind his vastness, and to just wonder at the fact that he would even want to spend a moment with us. But he does. See, the Israelites had come to realize that this God is not like their idols from their ancestors' past, that they could touch and they could hold. This is a vast terrifying God. He was awesome, and yet he also seems to want to accept them. He is the king of kings, but he wants to come close. On the third day, I'm going to come down, and I'm going to meet with you. That's what we were made for to worship and meet with our God. And the fact that he wants that is utterly mind-boggling. Just fast forward some years, and Jesus is buried in a tomb. And there are women weeping and on their way to tend to the dead body of this man. 
Now, what they knew about this man was that Jesus accepted people. You could come close to Jesus. He loved them. Whether it's little children coming and kind of snotting and making a mess all over him, whether it was the despised and, and broken of society, the lame, the diseased, the lepers, the blind, whether it's the despised and the shunned, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, he welcomed them all. They knew, if they knew anything about Jesus, that he loved and accepted them. They knew, if they knew anything about Jesus, that you could come close to him. And yet all that love and all that acceptance seemingly was dead in the grave. Except that they forgot the promise that Jesus had made. See, just as the Israelites were told on the third day, I will come and meet with you, the disciples had been told, on the third day, I will rise. I will come to you. And so we come to a different third day. So similar in some ways to the third day of the Israelites. And I'm going to read from Matthew 28. It says that now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes as white as snow. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The flash like lightning, the earth shaking, looks familiar. And this God, this man who they knew they could come close to, they suddenly realized was the king of kings. And this accepting one, they suddenly realized was the awesome Lord of life who had defeated death and risen from the grave. And so, of course, they worshipped him. The thing they had set free, been set free for, to come and worship Jesus. And don't you find it touching how much care Jesus goes to, to speak individually to these groups of people? I mean, this is Jesus. He has just been risen from the dead. He has defeated death. He has conquered sin and the grave. And he surely just needs to get the word out. I am risen. Salvation for all. Come to me. So cut the kind of small interactions. Go straight for the big crowd. Go to the mountaintop where you show all those people that you're alive. But he doesn't. He 
spends all this time meeting with the women, going meeting with the disciples. He spends this time saying, angels, make sure you tell the women where they can see me. Women, go and tell the disciples where they can see me, and I'll meet with you. He kind of accosts two people on the road to Emmaus, has a little chat with them, wants them to see him, realize who he is. People are having dinner in a, in a nice locked room. Jesus appears, here I am. What is all that about? This is the God who made us to worship and to be with him. And so he's being with the people he saved. He's being with them. See, this mighty, awesome, burning, glorious God of heaven loves and wants to be with you and with me. So much so that he would go to the cross to make a way for us to come to him. It is staggering. But that's how much he loves us. For some of you, you might think, I've known God, I guess, if there was one, as maybe a kind of distant being. But I've never thought of him as someone who loves me that much, who would actually want to know me, be in the detail of my life. The good news is that you can not only see him in this word, but you can meet him today because he is here by his spirit. He comes and lives in those who believe and follow him. He comes and dwells in us as a people. And if you don't know him, you can meet him this morning. For others of us, we might be used to the fact that that we can know him. We can get used to the familiarity of coming to church, of worshipping. And maybe we need to take another look again in awe and wonder at the awesome creator, the burning God of heaven, who, like we celebrated in the worship, comes to be our friend. Utterly staggering. But if this is the same God of, as in Exodus 19, this fiery burning God, I mean, how is it even possible that Mary can come and take hold of his feet and worship? How is it even possible that we can talk about knowing him as a friend? That doesn't make sense, surely. Well, the key to understanding what on earth is going on here doesn't come so much on the third day as on the preparation for the third day. So it says in Exodus 19 that Moses is told to go and consecrate the people and get them to wash their garments. Now, I know you're thinking they're going to meet someone very important. God's coming down on day three. Very important to be clean, freshly smelling, as you would do if you're meeting anybody. Yeah, agreed? Yeah, you're smelling nice and fresh, so I'm assuming that you took that as a, as a standard life procedure. <laughs> Glad to see. But don't forget the... The staggering nature of this. This is an ancient time when washing clothes wasn't so common because water was so precious. And they're not in Egypt anymore. They're not by the Nile. They're in the desert, in the wilderness. This is a major undertaking, having people wash all of their clothes. Where are they going to get that water from? But then think back a few weeks, and we saw that as they thirsted, God miraculously provided water. You see, 
as Moses struck the rock, the rock, water was miraculously provided for them. And that must have been the same water they used to wash their clothes now. But just as they go about this big physical washing procedure, that is simply an imperfect signpost to the most staggering washing spiritually that Jesus would accomplish on the cross. You see, just as the rock was struck to give out water, Jesus was struck on the cross. And just as the water flowed to cleanse and quench our thirst, Jesus' blood was flowed out to cleanse us. Him taking the punishment for all our mistakes, for all our wrongdoings, for all our mess. He took it all on him. And his blood washes us clean of every sin, of every stain, of every blemish. And clothes us in his righteousness so that we can come. God provides our cleansing. God provides our consecration. But so they've been made clean. They're kind of trying to make themselves, you know, suitable to come to God. And Moses leads them out and gets them around the base of the mountain. But still, they can't come close. He sets boundaries around them, boundary markers, and keeps reminding them not to overstep the boundary. I mean, if that wasn't enough, all the kind of pyrotechnics and um, terrifying lightning flashes and thunderclouds, that would be enough to say, danger, do not come close. This is not an approaching moment. Yes, they can come closer, but they can't come right in. Only one person is allowed right in. Only Moses. And Moses, it, we see, starts this kind of very energetic um, experience of, of needing to go up and down the mountain, up and down, up and down, taking the, the people's words and responses to God, representing the people to God, telling them, him everything that they said, and then God sending him back down with a message to go and tell the people what God has said, and so it goes on and on and on. My personal favourite being when God calls him up to the mountain simply to send him back down with another message straight away. The poor guy is getting tired. But as he relays those messages, he is being a go-between. He is mediating between the people and God. But not only that, it's, God is, is strangely insistent that the people know that Moses is chosen for this task. You would think that the fact that Moses can actually walk up through the fiery mountain to God, get a message from God, come back down, would be enough, having not died, to prove that he was God's messenger. That yes, no, you are chosen for this task because you're not dead. We will believe you, Moses. But that's not what happens. God is insistent that the people know really clearly that Moses is his chosen mediator. He tells Moses, I'm going to speak to you out of a thick cloud, so that when the people hear me speak to you and me respond, they will believe you forever. God is really, really keen that his people know that Moses is his chosen mediator. And comical as it is seeing Moses going up and down the mountain with relaying message and message and message and message, it is simply another imperfect signpost to a better mediator, to a perfect mediator to Jesus, the perfect God-man, the one who could perfectly represent people to God, the one who could perfectly represent God to man, and the one who committed the greatest act of mediation on the cross 
when he took man's sin and died for man's sin and gave us his righteousness. But how do we know? How do we know that this mediation has been accepted? You'll remember at Jesus' baptism, there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And we now see at the resurrection, as he raises him from the dead, that his mediation is completely acceptable to God. He has accepted what he has done on the cross on our behalf. So we can come washed clean by his blood. And it talks about us being hidden inside, as if we can hide inside and come straight to the Father. That's how we can come in. That's how we can come close. It's utterly staggering. And that's the hope that we have. That is the freedom that we are brought into. He washes us clean, and he mediates perfectly for us. The great news for us is that that can give us confidence when we have messed up, when our attitudes or our jealousies or our, our rash words or our actions have, have not been right, have not been good. We can be confident that Jesus has paid for it because he was raised from the dead to prove God's acceptance. And we can be confident that he has given us new life and new hope, not to keep falling into the same patterns, but to take hold of the new life that we have now in Jesus. And also, that can give you confidence this morning if you're thinking, I don't know whether I know this God. And though I'd like to, how do I really know if I can trust the words that he says? When Jesus says, come to the Father through me, when Jesus says, you can come to know God, how can I really trust his words? How do I know it's true? Because Jesus was raised from the dead to prove it. And if you are exploring and trying to get your head around all of this, I just encourage you to research the resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection. If you're not sure where to start, start with A Case for Christ, written by a guy called Lee Strobel. It's a great starting point. But this is a life-changing offer, and it is guaranteed by the empty tomb. So we're set free to worship, and God has cleansed us, made us clean, and welcomed us in, perfectly mediating for us. But I don't know about you, in the day-to-day humdrum of life, it can kind of feel a little bit less dramatic than the events of Exodus 19 and the events of the resurrection can kind of feel a little bit run-of-the-mill. You know, you're kind of getting ready for work, you're busy sorting the kids out, you're trying to cook dinner, trying to get ready on Sunday, having a debate about what you should have for, for Easter lunch. Do we all like the same thing? Life can feel quite humdrum. Or, at times, life can just feel quite hard. Where does this all fit in? Where does the fact that we can come to Jesus all fit in? Well, we're standing in the, in, the, in the part of history that people often refer to as the kind of now and the not yet. Because we can come now. The cross and the resurrection have won for us an access to our living God. And we can come and we can meet with him now. But we are also guaranteed 
a hope for the future, where we will see a perfect fulfillment of what Jesus won for us. Right now, it means that we can come together and worship. We can come and experience his Holy Spirit. It gives us confidence to press in, even when things are hard, even when it feels like you're just kind of going through the motions. It gives us confidence that we need to keep on pressing in because this is the new reality. The stuff that causes us stress and and pain and hurt, that is the passing away. That is the dying kingdom of darkness whose death was sealed at the cross. And the new reality is that we can come. We're told that we're seated in heavenly places, already able to raise our voices and, and worship with the angels. This is our new reality, and we desperately need to keep meeting together, to keep worshiping, to keep fixing our eyes on him, especially when it's hard, especially when it feels humdrum, especially when life's painful. We keep pressing on. It's not that we're spiritual junkies just going from one high to the next. It's that we need to keep having a taste of the reality while we live out this life. And amazingly, he gives us his spirit so that we can do that. But we also have a future reality to look forward to. We saw at the resurrection, the earthquakes, the lightning appearances, so similar to when God came down on Mount Sinai. And yet there was one thing missing. One thing we didn't see at the resurrection. And that was the trumpet blast from heaven. Because we are still waiting for that trumpet blast. Because we are told that when that final trumpet blast from heaven comes, that that will signal the final descent of our God to be with us, bringing the new heaven, the new earth, and to live with us forever and ever. We're told that then what we see kind of now as a glimmer, in a, like a reflection in a mirror, we will see face to face. And all death and all sickness and all pain will pass away. And we will worship him forever. We are waiting for that trumpet blast. And as we deal with the humdrum of life or the pain of this world, we look to that day and we get hope and we get courage and we press on.